Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about the real estate market and the people connected by it. We seek to empower our listeners to make informed decisions while providing context for the real estate world around them. We hope that with every episode, you become a little more knowledgeable and a lot more curious. On today's episode of the Rennie Podcast, we're very excited to be able to sit down and talk with the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver's very own ethics guy, Kim Spencer. Kim has been a longtime member and broker of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver and rejoined in 2006 as an employee. Since then, he has written over 300 articles, which are now circulated among the members of the industry. Kim is a strong advocate for best industry practices and helps our realtors champion successful behaviors. Chances are, if you are a realtor in Vancouver, you have taken one of his courses at the board and know that he is full of knowledge, stories, and great humor. Thank you, Kim, for joining us today. Thanks, Justine. I'm glad to be here. So let's talk about your role at the Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board as the ethics guy. How did this name come about? You know, it's actually kind of funny because uh, for a long time, my kids used to say, Dad, what do you actually do? And I try to explain to them what I actually do, and it, it didn't take. And for a while, I described myself as being the complaints guy at the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. But, you know, that's actually kind of a negative thing. And it's, it's not really the primary focus of what I do. And so we were at a West Side Division cocktail party. And, um, well, at cocktail parties, conversations progress and alcohol helps. And someone said, well, so what do you actually do? And I, I said, well, I'm the ethics guy. And um, they said, that's perfect. What a great name. So we decided that that would be my informal title. And the real estate board actually went ahead and trademarked, registered that that name. So it's an asset of the real estate board. And um, that's me. That's a great story. And yeah, I think that everybody knows that name, the ethics guy. We've heard it or seen it somewhere, right? So if you don't know the name behind it, it's Kim Spencer. There we are. <laughs> yeah. So on a day-to-day, what does your role entail for you, Kim? When I was hired, I was hired to fill a gap. Uh, The board of directors felt that there wasn't someone at the real estate board who had done what the members did every day, someone that they could phone and talk to about the various issues that they face, the questions that they have. And so it was felt it'd be good to have someone with some experience because I have done what they do. So I'd like to be seen and I hope I'm seen as being the member's friend. So how, how do I do that? Well, I write a column for members, as you say. I've written about 300 of them every two weeks since 2006. I do a top tip videos where I'll amplify something that I've written in my column. I visit brokered sales meetings. I do a lot of education. And I just generally champion the best behavior that members can provide to their clients and the the people that they deal with. Yeah. So for those who um, don't quite understand, uh, what is it that the real estate board, what is it that they really do? Hmm. It's a society under the Societies Act. It has represented, it has been the voice of real estate agents in the Vancouver area. We have some neighboring boards, but pretty much it's been the, it's been the voice of real estate agents. So if you will, it, it has many hats. It's It's got a lobbying hat. So we will lobby the government for um, laws and practices and requirements that help people buy and sell real estate in the Vancouver area. Uh, We've got an internal hat uh, that we wear where we provide a whole bunch of services to our members, including educational uh, professional development courses, uh, the multiple listing service, which is our, I think our, our biggest gold ticket item, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. We've been operating the multiple listing service now, their system, if you will, 
um, for, well, for pretty much 50 years. It's the go-to source for information. If you, if you ask me what I think the single biggest accomplishment is of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, um, we've done a lot in 102 years, but the biggest single thing that's had both a member and a public benefit, it would be the multiple listing system. Mm-hmm. It's It brings order to a chaotic marketplace. It gives a, a place that people can go to find information about real property in Vancouver. We offer all kinds of stuff uh, to our members. That's our focus. But we, we don't ignore consumers either. It's just that we're not the public regulator. That's the Real Estate Council, and its focus is solely on consumers. And when you say members, you're referring to real estate agents, right? Realtors. Yeah, we have more than one kind of member. I mean, you know, everyone's a member, but there's different different types of members. So we have residential real estate agents, as, as you would imagine. And if you're a member of a real estate board in Canada, then you get to call yourself a realtor. That's a trademarked term. If you're not a member of a real estate board, you're a real estate agent. So we have uh, residential real estate agents, uh, realtors. We have commercial real estate agents. We have rental property managers, strata property managers. So there's a number of different types of people who are members of the board. The, the vast majority are residential real estate agents. That's great. And I feel that a lot of people don't know the difference between the real estate board and the real estate council. Are you able to shed some light on that? Okay, so there is a difference, quite a significant one, between the real estate council and a real estate board. There's 10 boards in BC. They, they, their process is roughly the same for handling complaints. Uh, one is a public complaint process. The other is a private complaint process. So the regulator, uh, the real estate council of BC, you, you would expect that to be a public process. So it publishes discipline uh, against licensees. And its process for hearings and so forth is a public one. So just like a court case, uh, a member of the public can attend. And all of the decisions it, uh, made, disciplinary decisions made by the council against licensees in the province of BC are posted on its website. And in fact, if you look at a licensee's license, if you go and look it up, if they've had discipline, you will see a link to that discipline on their license for a period of years. I think it's, it can be up to 10 years. Um, now, the Real Estate Board is a private association. Uh, so our, we do have a disciplinary system, but it's not a public one. So we, we don't discuss that we have a complaint um, file open. Uh, we do not discuss publicly what the decision of our professional conduct committee might have been. We do publish it to members as a learning tool for them, but it's not a public system. We've had conversations about making it public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the decision has been made to continue, uh, as has been the case for 102 years, to, to keep it private. It's not because we have things to hide. It's because there's context. Uh, there's privacy issues in the relationship between members and the board that would make it difficult for the board to publish these disciplinary decisions in public. But you may wonder, what what can the board do? Well, it can expel a member from the real estate board. So what would that mean? No access to MLS. That's a pretty big deal. Mm-hmm. No access to continuing education. No access to lockbox. No access to web forms, the standard forms. Uh, the, the committee can punish members up to $30,000 in fines and has done more than once. It can suspend a member from privileges. So, it, it, you know, we have a very robust system But the fact that we don't talk about it publicly doesn't mean that we don't discipline our members. We do. What would you say is the main objective of your role at the board? Well, we don't 
we don't ever want to uh, managing brokers. Those are the managers of each brokerage office to think mm-hmm. that the real estate board is treading on their turf. Um, but we, we, you know, so we try to strike a balance between, we never want to get caught between a broker, uh, broker's advice and, and, and what we suggest should be done. Mm-hmm. But we want to provide to our members as a service, someone like me who can help them, uh, work through a problem. I often they'll, they'll call me and they'll say, uh, well, I've got, I don't quite know what to do. So I'll, I'll walk them through a logical process that we've developed. And it usually starts with, um, Okay, so who are you representing? (laughs) Sometimes that becomes unclear. So who are you representing? Well, I'm representing the buyer. Okay. Well, um, do you have an agency relationship with your buyer? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, well, that's fine. Then you've got three basic fiduciary obligations, loyalty, confidentiality, and disclosure. And usually just going through those simple steps will identify what it is that needs to get done. Usually questions relate to, do I need to disclose that? Should I disclose that? Um, or I'm in a conflict of interest, how do I handle it? Those are very common questions, apart from technical questions related to how do I do this or how do I do that? I've got more than one offer to present. What, what are, what's the requirement? You know, my seller wants me to do this. My seller doesn't want me to disclose a physical property defect. What, what should I do? Mm-hmm. So at what point, Kim, do you tell the realtors to refer to their managing brokers regarding the questions that they may have to you? Sure. Pretty much always. I mean, I may I may forget now and again, but my goal is to make sure that the real estate board and any advice it might give doesn't get between the broker and the realtor who works for that broker, because the broker is liable, vicariously liable for everything the realtor does. So we don't want to insert ourselves uh, between the licensee, the realtor and the broker. So it's very important that I that I always uh, refer the member back to their broker. So often I'll say something like, uh, well, look, if you're asking what I think, this is what I think, but you, you really do need to check with your managing broker because it's not my call. Right. And do you often get the same people to, that call you again, time and time again? Well, uh, yes, I do. I, I, I have a lot of friends in the business. I've been in it in a long time. So, you know, I have friends who call me, people who used to work for me who call me. I, I have members who just seem to like me, thankfully, and, and will call me. Other members have s- such strong relationships with their brokerages. They don't know me personally. So they always talk to their managing broker. And that's a good thing. That's the mark of a good company. Uh, where um, the broker gets all the calls and the real estate board doesn't. Uh, sometimes, though, so, uh, brokers just have very uh, uh, just commercial relationships with their mm-hmm. realtors and um, they call the board more. Right. And I think that's something that we already really pride ourselves on, the fact that we have such a strong relationship with our advisors, with also a high ratio of managing broker to advisor um, ratio, which is very uncommon in this industry. So it's good to hear that, um, you know, these questions are being redirected to the managing broker and hopefully we don't, uh, or you don't receive any of those, uh, those calls from our many advisors. <laughs> I'll never tell. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a clear distinction between ethics and a lawful regulation. Are you able to speak to that a little bit and tell me the difference? Yeah. You know, that's the eternal conversation in the real estate business. There's expected business etiquette. There's expected business civility. There are legal requirements and regulated requirements. And then there are um, moral requirements, often referred to as um, ethical standards. 
And so sometimes it's difficult to figure out which is which. But let, let me give you an example. Um, so a law, uh, in this case, a, a statute, uh, the Real Estate Services Act of BC, and then that's enforced by the council, the regulator. It has a series of council rules. They aren't embodied in the act, but council makes these rules and enforces them against licensees. So one of the rules, it's called the material latent defect rule. Okay. And it prescribes, it's very prescriptive. It, it, it tells licensees what they must do if there's a physical property defect that the seller knows about. Okay, so so the requirement is this. If it's a physical property defect the seller knows about that would take great expense to remedy, and that's not defined in the rule, if it would cause the property to be unsafe or unhealthy for the buyer, uh, it would render the property unsuitable for the purpose for which the buyer is buying it and some other stuff. If it's that, then the buyer must be notified in writing about that uh, physical defect before quote, a contract is entered into. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You're going to make an offer on a place and there's a problem with it. Um, you want to know that problem before you uh, make the offer and, and make a deal. Now, sometimes the seller doesn't know about the problem and that's usually the cause of it. Perhaps legal action between the buyer and seller. Did the seller know? And if the realtor's involved, sometimes it's should the realtor have known? Maybe they didn't know. They probably didn't know, but should they have known? So things circle around there. So that's that's a material latent defect in how you deal with it. That's a statute. That's a rule. Very prescriptive. Now, if we contrast that with someone having passed away in a home, okay, that's for some people that's a that's a fairly big deal. It's not like that for all, but for some people it's a pretty big deal. And within the, you know, the category of someone dying in a home. Some people might even make a distinction between a 99-year-old man dying peacefully in his bed in his own home and someone tragically committing suicide. You know, they might be okay with the first, but but not with the second, or someone being murdered in a home. So um, those things, a death in the home, a suicide, a murder, those kinds of things are are considered to be a stigma. So stigma is like a, like a black cloud hovering over the property mm -hmm. for some people, not all people. Um, and so there isn't a requirement that the real estate council has that tells the licensee, a real estate agent, that they have to disclose, voluntarily disclose this information. Um, it becomes a seller instruction. So the seller's agent should say to the seller, well, look, so, you know, you told me that grandma passed away upstairs. Um, that might come up from some buyers. How do you want me to handle that? Do you want me to volunteer the information to them uh, or do you want me to keep it confidential then the seller would be entitled to say no I'm instructing you not to answer that question and to keep the information confidential okay so so that's the difference between a something that's prescribed in a statute and and something that um, quite a lot of people would probably think well no you've got a moral obligation to disclose that that's not the same as a legal obligation mm -hmm. okay and um, where does the buyer or seller, how do they play a role in this? As you're mentioning, you know, the, the seller can say, you know, obviously not to release certain information. How does that make it difficult for the realtor to do their job? Well, um, it, it's all fine if the seller and the real estate agent are on the same page. 
The, in other words, your agent is comfortable with your instructions. I mean, if it's an illegal instruction, you, you can't follow it. And you must not follow it. And if the seller insists, you have to exit the relationship, right? But if it's a lawful instruction that makes the agent uncomfortable, then the agent has a decision to make. They can say to their, their client, look, I'm uncomfortable with that instruction. I, I think uh, there's good reason to disclose that someone's passed away in the home just because they're probably going to find out anyway. It seems to me to be the right thing to do. That's how I roll. So I, I would ask you not to give me that instruction. If, if the seller insists and, and the and the real estate agent's really uncomfortable with it, at some point they're going to have to say, well, you know what? I don't think we can work together. I, I, we just can't work together if you're going to insist on that. That's not. I'm not comfortable with the instruction. A, a lawyer would give the same kind of answer, I would think, mm-hmm. where there's lawful instruction, but it's just not something that they're comfortable doing. Yeah, and I guess this goes by case-by-case situation on, based on person-to-person. Exactly. So, Kim, you receive a complaint, and what is your next steps from there? What would that disciplinary process look like compared to the real estate councils? The background to both the council and the board's process is roughly the same, and it's called due process, right? Mm -hmm. So people are entitled to know who their accuser is. They're entitled to know what they're being accused of. They have the right to be heard and to speak and to present their own evidence, and they have a right to, to be judged by people who are impartial. So that, you know, those are pretty obvious concepts. I think people who are familiar with disciplinary processes uh, would expect. And so the only entity at the real estate board with the power to investigate member conduct and to decide guilt or innocence, and if there's guilt to decide what the punishment will be, is the professional conduct committee of the real estate board. So who's on the professional conduct committee? Well, there's a staff person assigned to that committee, as with any other private trade association or society. And uh, it, it reports back to the board of directors. But the committee itself is made up of a mix of managing brokers, real estate agents from big companies, small companies, independent companies, franchise companies, you know, commercial real estate. You know, there, we try to get a diversity of thought on our committee. And so there, there's good reason for that, um, by the way. Uh, if you're a professional association, I don't think our process is much different from other professions. It's important when you're judging uh, someone to be judged by your peers. They know where the bodies are buried. They know what the expected standard would be. They they understand the context. Mm-hmm. So that that's how professional associations generally discipline their members. So if I were to get a complaint, if it was uh, from a member about another member, uh, it's pretty simple. I'll just say, well, this is a an important thing that you're doing here. Um, the other side is entitled to due process. So I will ask you please to put your complaint in writing and sign it. It's a serious thing. It's not just a text message to the board saying, I want to complain about Kim Spencer. I, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a formal process. Um, and, and we also require the member to advise the other member they're upset about that and you know to ask them to resolve it. I mean, you would find that at the Better Business Bureau. It's just expected business etiquette. You tell the other person that there's something going on you'd like them to stop or to start doing, and would they please do it? And if they don't, you elevate it to the next level. We also require the managing broker of each brokerage to speak, we do, we we like them to try and solve the problem, but if it can't be solved or if the egg can't be unscrambled, you know, then we go to the formal process, which, as I said, starts off with that formal signed letter, along with any evidence that they have. 
Now, the real estate board is a society. We're not a regulator. We're not a court. We're not the police. So we can't require anyone to do anything unless they're a member. Mm -hmm. So if the complaint requires you know, testimony from a member of the public, sometimes we'll get that testimony, sometimes we won't. And, and as a consequence, sometimes a complaint will fail for lack of evidence, right? Mm -hmm. So the process that we'll follow is that, you know, just basic, we get the letter, we get the evidence, we send that to the member being complained about. We say, would you please respond with your own signed statement and evidence within 14 days? And uh, if the situation is still not resolved, and when we get the response, we talk to the complainant again, we will then send it off to our professional conduct committee. So I do all of the first part, um, but if the file is to go to the committee, I then send it to the committee, another staff person takes over. So there's a separation between me and what I do and my thoughts mm -hmm. and what the committee actually ends up seeing, which is simply the complaint, the evidence, and the response. And then it follows its process. The board has a lawyer who guides the committee members through the process. It makes its decision. There is an appeal committee. Pretty pretty standard um, court-tested process that we have. That's similar to council, but the real estate council is a regulator. So it gets the public complaints first. Mm -hmm. We deal with member versus member complaints, right? So council's process it has subpoena power. It has legal power. So it can require anyone to give evidence at a hearing and so forth. It's it's probably a it's a it's a it's a, a more um, if you can imagine more formal process than right. um, society would have. Are there specific things that home buyers and sellers can do to prepare themselves for a better home buying experience or selling experience? Yeah. Sounds kind of blunt and don't take this the wrong way, but if you're going to hire someone to advise you, take their advice. Mm -hmm. Some people do that. A lot of people hire someone and then just want to argue with the advice. And that, that does make it a challenge for a real estate agent. It's really important to have a good relationship with your the people you're working with. Um, so there's good communication and so forth. So I think one of the best things that a real estate agent can do is be firm with their client or the person that they're they're working with. Be really firm with them and to manage their expectations at the outset. So that would obviously include them making their sales pitch. Why should you deal with me? You know, as opposed to the other 13,999 members, you know, what makes me special? So you you would go through that whole process. But uh, after someone said, yes, I, I want you and I want you to help me solve my problem, find a place or sell my place, then I think it's really important for a real estate agent to explain the process so you could say something like, okay, so really happy to ha have the listing in your confidence. I'm going to get started tomorrow on this. And look, just to manage your expectations, it's going to take three or four days before we get this property on the market, I have to have my photographer through, the virtual tour people through. You need to do some things to uh, to stage your property. So it's probably going to be about a week before it's really up and running. It's nice for people to understand that. You know, I'm going to need a set of keys. And, you know, there are going to be buyer's agents who are going to want to show the property to their buyers. And they don't usually want to see the seller at home because they people don't like to look at a home when the sellers are at home. So you would go through all those sorts of things with your client. You would also, and, and on, if you're working with a buyer, this is where you would talk to your buyer about 
all the different places that you likely can show them, that they should make a list of the things that they have to have and the things that they would like to have, and that um, they need to take a close look at their finances as to what they can actually afford, not not what they would like to have. Uh, and that might mean making some trade-offs. That you could discuss how stressful and exciting it can be on the on the evening that you're going back and forth with an offer and what it would be like if you were in a multiple offer situation and how not to lose your head and bid more than offer more, excuse me, than, than you would normally be comfortable with or your banker be comfortable with. You know, all that stressful stuff. You know, the first example I gave today was a buyer, I think, who was saying something like, well, I, they should have countered me first. I got my offer in first and I would have paid that much. I see mm-hmm. somebody else bought as well. Why didn't they come to me first? Well, so if you're the buyer's agent, you should explain that to your buyer. Listen, you get one chance to make a good impression on a seller in a multiple offer presentation. So my advice is make your best offer first time. Mm-hmm. You can offer less. Of course, I'll write that up for you. But the seller might go with somebody else, choose to deal with someone else's offer. They don't have to deal with yours. I, my only obligation is to get it to the seller's agent so the seller's agent can get it in front of the seller. But then after that, it's their decision what they do. Right. And I, I feel like a lot of people don't really know the true value and meaning of what a realtor really does. Mm-hmm. Right. They obviously there's a lot of work that they do behind the scenes that, um, you know, their clients and other people may not understand, especially on um, you know TV shows. They always show them doing other things, the, the exciting stuff, but never the, the things that you see behind the scenes. Are you able to talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Real, real estate agents are problem solvers. That's how they see themselves. They're, they're usually very good communicators. They're great hand holders. Um, y- you know, they have a role to play in sometimes saving people from themselves. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? Well, if, if you know, there's different kinds of people. There's big picture people who just need a few basic facts. They make decisions on their gut intuitively very, very easily. They're very easy to deal with. Um, there, there are other people who are very detail oriented. You know, they've got to have everything lined up, all of the facts and so forth. At some point, a good agent will recognize this and, and learn how to provide enough information to help someone make the decision that they know that they want to make and not like get uh, stuck in the weeds looking at some smaller things. So that, that's all to do with the ability of someone to speak to someone's strengths. You know, most people don't like to make decisions. Did you know that? You know why that is? Why is that? It's because they're afraid of making a mistake. Hmm. A good real estate agent will remove those barriers uh, and make it easy for someone to say yes, because they know what the person wants. They want to move into another property. But sometimes people are so afraid of making a mistake that they let the fear of making a mistake prevent them from making what's probably the best decision they could possibly make. Mm -hmm. So a good agent will recognize that and help people and speak to their strengths. Uh, as well as providing accurate information, <laughs> being a good negotiator and saying to their client, listen, I think this is about the best offer you're going to get. Of course, if you want to counter back, we can. I'm, I'm your agent. Of course, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you might it might be overstepping with them. They might walk and, and go offer uh, on someone else's property. Or, you know what, they might come back with the number you want. So what would you like to do? Good agent will let the client decide that. Right. Just being able to offer those negotiating advices and their experience, right, and knowledge. It seems like we've talked a lot about the role as a realtor and um, 
you know, the, some of the, the things that they do, what are their contractual obligations to their clients? Well, it depends what kind of relationship that they have. Now, there's two relationships that a real estate agent can have with a buyer or seller. The most common one is as their agent. Uh, that's a very, very um, important relationship. You know, I like to tell our members that if you're in an agency relationship with someone, there's two only two other relationships you can have with other human beings in your life that are more important. One is being married and the other is being a parent. <laughs> being an agent isn't that much different, frankly. Mm-hmm. It's a, just a little bit less onerous than being a parent or a spouse. <laughs> it's a very important relationship. Courts take it extremely seriously. The regulator takes it seriously, and so do we. So how do you establish an agency relationship with someone? Well, you can you can establish one um, through what's called conduct. We prefer that members don't do that. And for that reason, we give them standard agency contracts for them to execute with their clients. They're very detailed contracts. They lay out in a lot of detail what the obligations of the client um, are and what the, cl- uh, the obligations of the members are. And they have a beginning and an end, just like any other contract. And there's a blank page in there for all kinds of different things that are going to get done or not get done, depending on the business model. That's what we recommend members do. Now, the most common ones, a, a listing contract, isn't it? Sellers sign listing contracts with members all the time. What, what's less common, but I really wish would be more common, would be buyers signing agency contracts with buyer's agents. Mm-hmm. Most of our members don't use them. I wish they would. Yeah, that's right. And do you feel that there is, it's the reason because there's a pushback between buyers um, not wanting to sign an agreement? I just think it's, it's not customary. Um, and so when it's not customary and you ask someone to sign a form that maybe they've not used or heard of before, mm-hmm. they people's natural inclinations go, why do you want me to sign that? I've never signed one before to work with a real estate agent. Right. It's just better to have a contract that lays out who is responsible for what. It's just a way better situation for both the client and our member, frankly. Yes, I agree. So Kim, I wanted to actually go into, um, dive a little bit deeper. Uh, You know, we talked about the responsibilities of a realtor, um, you know, what they're contractually obligated to do, but also realtors do a lot of things that um, is not within their scope of duty. You want to talk a little bit more about that as well? <laughs> sure. You know, we're, we're not shy people. When, and I, I use the term we because I, by extension, I always still think um, like a real estate agent because I've been one since 1980 in, in, in a way. So, I've been around the block a time or two, and I, I know what people expect. We, You know what? We haven't actually been very good in our profession at defining what it actually is that we do. Mm-hmm. So as a consequence, we can end up being expected to be responsible for everything, including stuff that our clients promised to do that they didn't do. I'm sure you've heard of um, situations where perhaps the seller moves out of the property and takes the famous dining room chandelier with them. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they don't vacuum the place or clean the kitchen and it's a mess. Uh, and it's not uncommon for a buyer to get mad at the real estate agents. Well, you told me that the place was going to be clean. Well, well, yes, I relayed to you what my client said that they would do and that they agreed to do in the contract. Mm-hmm. You know, So we're problem solvers at heart. So we, we try to fix everything. We try to fix everything smooth out all the bumps, handle everything for people. And uh, as a consequence, you know, 
thought to be responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that seems to happen a lot, even though um, it's not that particular realtor's obligation to do to do so but you know they will try their best to make sure that their clients are happy and you know whether it be cleaning up that place themselves just because it wasn't done so in the contract they will do it i've made beds i've cut lawns i've um, cleaned kitchens all kinds of things yeah comes under the heading of goodwill customer relations all all of those things uh, some members there's no limit to what they what they would do with other members at some point they would go okay you know what uh, I, no <laughs> i've done about as much as i could do but they also have a hand holding function as i mentioned earlier there's there's a lot of stress related to this short period of time that someone's you know selling and buying another place so you know there's sometimes spousal stress and mm-hmm. and that gets reflected back on the member and they're you know a lot of them internalize it they, they, it's it's very hard on um realtor relationships with their important family and spouses because they they absorb a lot of stress from their clients it takes a special kind of person to be able to handle that yeah so i guess we know in the industry we say it's putting out fires every day right yeah and doing some preventative um you know work beforehand to just to make sure that they don't pop up right I want to take this opportunity to debunk some common industry misconceptions, if we may. Um, Yeah. Are there any reoccurring questions or inquiries that you receive from buyers or sellers um, that you get all the time that is maybe a a myth? Not a myth, um, but I sometimes think that some people think that real estate agents somehow create the market. You know, the market's being driven by real estate agents Mm -hmm. or uh, the real estate agent raised the price or did that. It, look, people know what their properties are worth and they're entitled to expect that their biggest asset uh, will realize the maximum price. It's theirs to sell. It's it's their asset. Mm-hmm. And the real estate agent is really their mouthpiece and their advocate. And so we, we reflect what buyers and sellers decide to negotiate. We help people negotiate. We communicate we hold hands. We do all of those things. Mm-hmm. So um, it always mystifies me when 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 someone will have the impression, or you may read a news article where it it, it looks as if somehow the market is is manipulated by real estate agents. I, I don't personally believe that. Um, I believe that buyers and sellers are very well able to take care of themselves uh, with the help of a good real estate agent. But they are the ones who make these decisions, and the, and they are market driven decisions. We work in a market economy that's how our system functions um we should talk about what the words listing price mean that's an important discussion lots of people are having it nowadays and it pops up in hot markets and so as as you know or can imagine a seller is entitled to decide what they want to list their property for sale at right it's their decision now the real estate agent will do a, a market analysis to help them establish what what the property would probably sell for. But at the end of the day, it's the seller's decision what they choose to list their property at. And some sellers is a marketing strategy. Uh, and, and they will have gotten input from this from their agent. Uh, you know, you can, you've can you got some choices if you're a seller. You can list high mm-hmm. and hope that someone comes along and pays you, you know, more than market. That usually doesn't work, by the way. Uh, or you can list on the market 
and we'll hope that a buyer will perceive the property to be a good deal. Or you, in a hot market, you, you can list below what's considered to be common market price for a property in the hope that buyers will become excited and write more than one offer. That's what sellers want to see. And again, it's, it's something that a seller would want to see, not what a buyer would want to see, but the seller's agent acts for the seller, not for the buyer. In a situation where a seller may list the property at, at a sharp price, let's say, or you know, an aggressive price, uh, um, you know, you might look at a property that's possibly worth a million dollars, let's say, and the seller says, "Well, look, let's let's put our price at nine fifty. You know, let's, let's get everybody excited and see what happens." I think that you know, there's a perception that that if the seller lists the property at 950 that they have an obligation to take 950 if someone offers that number i had it explained to me by one of the board's counsel uh, as to what list price actually means i think what most people think a listing price is is the seller saying to the marketplace this is what i am asking that's why people often use that term asking price it's actually misleading a listing price is the seller saying to the market, I'm listing my property at 950 and I'm inviting everybody to make me an offer, which I will consider and decide what I want to do with. That's quite different from characterizing the price as being an asking price. Because if you say asking price and someone offers that ask, then you know they've got an expectation the seller is going to take that, has an obligation to take that number. Mm-hmm. That's never been the case. In the real estate market, it's called an invitation to treat. It's a legal term. List price should never be confused with ask price. So people, you know, I I wish that we wouldn't use terms like asking price and I put my bid in because you're not an auction. Yeah. If the seller is listed at X and they're inviting you to make him an offer. Right. And sometimes you you hear those two words, asking price and listing price being used interchangeably, which is incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. I think very few people understand that. And and to be be honest, I was probably in the business for 25, 30 years before I understood it. <laughs> so it's not surprising that a lot of people wouldn't understand it. But, you know, it gives rise to those conversations where people go, what the heck? I made a full price offer and the seller didn't take it. They should have taken my price. Well, of course, if, if it's an asking price, if that's what it is, yeah, then there's probably an obligation there. But moral, perhaps not legal, but moral, but but if it's a list price, which is an invitation to treat, make me an offer price, that's that's a horse of a different color. And that's what we have in our system. Yeah, I, I, there's also other, um, I guess, uh, assumptions out there where people feel that if they have the highest price, that their highest price offers should essentially win that particular property. Um, can you speak to that? Sure, I can. You, look, money usually wins the day. I don't want you to think that it's a rare situation where a seller will take a lower number than the highest number offered. But there's more to an offer than the price. And if you've presented one, and I know mm-hmm. that, that you, you, you all have, um, you know that you look at things like the deposit amount. You look at the dates. You look at what the buyer is asking for. You look at the credibility of the buyer. Is it a subject to financing offer with a sort of an iffy, in a situation where they're they're really stretching, or is it someone who's pretty uh, well set financially? They've made a good deposit, no subjects, that kind of thing. A, a conservative seller uh, may go for the lesser offer 
if there's a big deposit, great dates and no subjects. Yeah. You know, I actually sold a property once when I was brand new. (laughs) This is really amazing. I was working with a friend of mine from school. It was my second deal. It was on the west side of Vancouver. And the seller uh, was a widow. And I had my friend with his wife. They were the the consummate, nice young couple. And they came and looked at the property. And the seller happened to be home. And she really hit it off with this young couple. And they couldn't afford more than, than a particular number, which was much lower than I thought would get the property. But, uh, you know, they asked me to write the offer. I did. I presented it. And the, the seller accepted their offer. And I, I, I said to the seller's agent, I can't, I, I'm very happy for my clients. I can't believe they accepted that offer. And he said to me, you know what? She wanted those buyers to have her house. She mm-hmm. really liked them. Now, not everybody works that way, but some people do. That, that's, a, that's a factor. It's an ingredient in their decision-making. Right. Thank you, Kim, for joining us today and giving us so many great examples and sharing your knowledge. Is there any final sentiments or thoughts that you want to share with everybody that's listening? Yes, I, I would. I would like uh, members to know and anyone else listening to this that most of the time things go pretty well. It's amazing. There's over 100,000 properties a year sold in the province of BC. I mean, it's been as high as 112. It's been as low as in the, in the 60s. But this year, I, th- I think the numbers are on track for 100,000 or more. So, you, you know, in, in any uh, 100,000 transactions, you're occasionally going to get uh, some situations where things didn't go right for any number of reasons. Hum- human beings are imperfect. And so <laughs> you're occasionally going to have some situations that, that aren't good. But the actual number for claims, lawsuits, if you will, against real estate agents in the province of BC is just over three for every 1,000 transactions. That's a very low number. I don't know what other professions' numbers are, but I think three against 1,000 is a pretty small number. Now, am I saying that I think that all the rest of the deals are fine? No, there's probably ruffled feathers here and there. There's probably things that have to get fixed or, or redone, for sure, just as it would be with any other profession. But, you know, they go really well, considering that it's such an emotional transaction for people, and, and there's not a lot of control over... Uh, many of the things that happen. So I just say that, you know, everyone works extremely hard. They care deeply about their clients. It's not often that I'll have a situation that I look at where um, someone has been, um, just hasn't acted in a way that, that we would expect. It's it's usually just someone was tired. Someone didn't know something. Someone mm-hmm. didn't communicate something clearly. So most of the time things work just fine. Thank you, Kim, for joining us today. Just hearing your final sentiments really confirms the fact that, you know, realtors are doing, you know, the best that they can. They are a lot of really great people. And and I can confirm that with my experience at Rennie, and I'm sure a lot of other people can confirm that with their own personal experiences as well. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge and your examples with us. It was a pleasure having you and we look forward to having you again, maybe sometime in the future. Well, I'd love to, Justine. Thanks for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank you. The Rennie Podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, all resources mentioned in the episode can be found on rennie.com. 